0: Jeremiah 30 and 31 is our passage we've been looking at for a couple weeks on the New Covenant. And you can turn in your Bibles there as we get back to that great, great passage. This week in a, a British journal of anesthesia, they published the, pure, uh, the curious case of Jo Cameron, a Scottish lady who actually li- lives on, on Loch Ness there in Scotland. Research has confirmed that she has a genetic mutation that prevents her from feeling pain they've been studying her now for some time because uh, they discovered after a couple of surgeries she needed no pain medication in fact when she gave birth to her children she said it was quite a thrilling event (laughs) i knew you ladies would enjoy that she needed no anesthesia no epidural she said it was fun In fact, she told her friends the whole thing about pain was overblown. (laughs) Later on in life, as she turned 65, her hand would no longer move and she couldn't figure out why, so she went to the doctor and they said, well, you have arthritis. She couldn't feel it, but they did a surgery on her hand. She needed no anesthesia, no pain uh, at all. She never felt any of it. Of course, the downside of all this is that throughout her life, Mrs. Cameron has been hurting herself without knowing it. Over and over again, she would cut herself and not know it until her husband saw the blood all over her. There were burns. Sometimes she wasn't even aware of until she smelled the burning flesh. And of course, there was the time, she said, when she broke her arm and didn't realize it for days until someone pointed out the unusual shape of her forearm. Sometimes you could imagine as it would be wonderful. It would be a blessing if you never felt any pain, if you never felt uh, those sharp shooting, whatever they are, anywhere in your body. But in fact, pain is a blessing. It's a warning of certain danger, letting us know that we are doing damage to ourselves in case we're not aware of it. That's true, of course, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain. And while you could wish that you could not feel pain, it is very dangerous, very dangerous if you don't. Some people even get that way in their conscience. They kind of wish that their conscience didn't bother them. In fact, they suppress the pain in their conscience over and over again until they eventually get to the place where they have so numbed themselves they no longer feel it they feel no more pain in their conscience they're not aware of the consequences of their actions and so consequently they're not aware when they face danger and they end up doing tremendous harm to themselves while they do not feel the pain in the moment of their choices while they may while they may feel some personal level of ease about the course of action they're taking it doesn't eliminate the very painful consequences that await them down the road and the anguish and the sorrow that will suddenly flood upon them. Jeremiah 30 and 31, which is our focus for these past couple of Sundays and and the next few, Jeremiah is describing in these chapters a, a, a nation and a people who have found themselves in just that kind of situation. They had suppressed their conscience. They had suppressed the pain that they felt emotionally. You might even say spiritually inside. God had taken Israel and chosen them to be his nation. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 7, I chose you among all the nations of the, uh, of the world, not because you were more mighty, not because you were anything great, but I chose you, he says in Deuteronomy 7, in order to show my love to you. So they were his elect people, his elect nation. And along the way, he revealed himself uniquely to them, unlike any other peoples, he revealed himself to them, made himself known by his law and his statutes, and made himself uh, available to them so that they could seek his face and his guidance. He promised that if they would do that, if they would follow his way, he would bless them. But he also told them if they wouldn't, if they hardened their hearts, then he would curse them. He was given the law, or they were given the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. And yet, despite all of that, they rejected the law. They entered into the promised land with the tabernacle, with the Torah, that is the the commandments and all of the statutes, with the priesthood, with everything in place so that they could worship God rightly and truly and so they could seek His face. But very quickly they turned aside and we read in the book of Judges that not long after they went into the promised land, every man was doing what was right in his own eyes. Along the way, God would send them. Prophets, even occasionally godly kings, but yet they would turn away again and again and again, hardening their hearts to the Word of God. He sent them David, He sent them Isaiah, He sent them Josiah, He sent them Jeremiah. Despite all these things, they wouldn't relent. Until the full weight of the consequences of their choices came crashing down on them, when it all in the end resulted in their capture. Almost 800 years after they entered the promised land with God's law, after 800 years of hardening their heart to the word of God over and over and over again, At the very end, God sends them this godly king, Josiah, and through him, a reformation of sorts began. They uncovered the book of the law, which had been lost for so many years, and through that, in 622, 621, they discovered this book. Through that, Josiah tried to reinstitute all of the things which had been lost in Israel's faithfulness, but it was nothing but superficial at best. And as soon as Josiah was gone, the people immediately returned back to their their waywardness and their idolatry until in 597 BC, they were surrounded by a Babylonian army who invaded Jerusalem and Judea. They breached the walls, captured the city, carried away most of the noble families and leaders and left them destitute from the top down. Even then, they wouldn't repent. Even then, they wouldn't turn back. They turned from God even more. And so, just a few years later, 10, 11 years later, Babylonians come back again in 587, this time not only capturing the city, but completely destroying it. They surrounded the city, they took it, and they left no stone, unturned. They brought it completely down. The temple of Solomon, the glorious temple in Israel, was brought completely down to nothing. They effectively reduced Jerusalem to an uninhabitable valley where perhaps a few Bedouin sheepherders would bring their sheep to graze on the overgrown ruins of the former city. And yet, Israel wouldn't repent. Jeremiah laments this in Jeremiah 15. He gives this, Then the Lord said to me, he says, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my heart would not turn toward this people. Send them out of my sight. Let them go. And when they ask, Where shall we go? You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, those who are for pestilence to pestilence, those who are for sword to sword, those who are for famine to famine, and those who are for captivity to captivity. I will point over them four kinds of destroyers, declares the Lord. The sword to kill, the dogs to tear, the birds of the air, and the beast of the earth to devour and destroy. And I'll make them a horror to the kingdoms of the earth because of what Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, did in Jerusalem. Who will have pity on you, O Jerusalem? Who will grieve for you? Who will turn aside to ask about your welfare? You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backwards. I've stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you. I'm weary of relenting. I've winnowed them with a winnowing fork in the gates of the Lamb. I have breathed them. I've destroyed my people. They did not turn from their ways. I made their widows more in number than the sands of the sea. I brought against them, against the mothers of the young men, a destroyer at noonday. I've made anguish and terror fall upon them suddenly. She who bore seven has grown feeble. She has fainted away. Her son went down while it was yet day. And she's been shamed and disgraced. And the rest of them, I'll give to the sword before their enemies, declares the Lord. This is where Israel found themselves after all of their hardening of heart, the deadening of their conscience, their refusal to relent. After all of these times, they found themselves under the punishing fury of God. And All of these things were just a fulfillment of this book of the law, which gave these very curses as warnings to Israel. Over and over again, the Lord had warned them. By prophet after prophet, he had warned them, and yet they wouldn't listen. And so the Lord finally pours out all of these things, just like he had done in the northern kingdom 80 years before, all of these things, and sent them into captivity. Now, the section we're looking at in Jeremiah in chapter 30 and 31 is written after all of that, after they've been brutalized, after they have been decimated, after they have been captured, after they've been carried away. And it's obvious as you read through Jeremiah 30 and 31, it's called the book of comfort. It's obvious as you read through it that he's talking to Jews who are now in exile and he's describing a city that has now been utterly destroyed. But he writes this chapter after all the judgment, after all of the punishment, after all of the pain. He writes this chapter to deliver a message of hope. After all this happened, God wants them to know that despite all of the pain that they are finally feeling, his love has not failed. He understands That just as much as sinners are prone to think that they will never be judged for their sins, that there will never be consequences for their actions, as much as a sinner deceives himself into thinking that he will never have to face the music, so also when he does fall into the consequences of his sin or when she does fall into the consequences of her sin, so also does the sinner despair of any hope. They believe that they are beyond any kind of redemption. They believe that there's no light at the end of the tunnel once they finally face the dreadful consequences of their sin. Both conclusions, of course, are not right for one and the same reason. Because of God. Because of God, you will never... Escape the consequences of your sin and because of God you will never be beyond hope if you repent so the Lord sends this message to Israel that in the depths of the punishments the pit of consequences of her sin he sends a message of hope and it comes in a series of contrast contrasting uh, the certainty of their judgment with the certainty of their rescue or the the reality of their destruction with the reality of their restoration the the reality of their sin with the reality of the potential renewal or the really the certain renewal of their nation and he does it here with a series of poems nine of them in total as you run from Jeremiah 30 through 31 each one of them beginning with the same phrase, thus says the Lord, all the way through as you track through those two chapters, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord. It indicates every one of those poems until you get to the final one where it has two of those phrases, a doublet, as we would say, marking it off as the sort of climactic and final poem in this series of poems. And all of them spelling out for us what we ultimately know as the new covenant. The New Covenant. Blessings that were promised to Israel, but were announced in the New Testament to also include Gentiles, to also include you and I as well. And so we're looking at this, these nine poems, so that we can understand the New Covenant better. Nine poems, as we said uh, last time, nine poems that present the promises of comfort and restoration. Nine poems that give us the promises of the new covenant. We already looked at the first two, calling the first one, if you remember, in verses 1 through 4, from ruin to restoration. The Lord speaks to them in those few verses, basically quoting from them, uh, quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 30, what He had already told them 800 years earlier, talking about how He was going to restore their fortunes. That's what he basically says to them in those four, those first four verses he's going to restore their fortunes verse 3 Deuteronomy 30 also says this it says when all of these things come upon you the blessing and the curse which i have set before you and you call them to mind among all the nations where the lord your god has driven you and you return to the lord your god you and your children and obey his voice as i command you today with all your heart and with all your soul then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you and he will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. So already from the very beginning, we have the sense that what Jeremiah is doing or what the Lord is doing through Jeremiah is he is basically expounding for them the very same truths he already gave them back in the book of Deuteronomy or back in the Pentateuch in general. The words of the words of doom are undergirded then by the promises of God's love. Secondly, we looked at a poem in verses 5 through 11 that we called From Panic to Peace. From Panic to Peace, where Jeremiah takes them back in their minds to the actual days when the city of Jerusalem fell. He takes them back to the day of panic, of terror, of no peace, as he says. In verse 6, why? Why do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? He kind of pictures the, 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 the terror and fright that, that happened on the day when the walls were breached and the people were coming in and slaughtering folks all around you. Blood and death and guts and gore everywhere. It was a time of distress, he says in verse 7 for Jacob. But he says, he goes on to say, it will sh- it'll sh- it'll come to pass in that day, declares the Lord, that I will break his yoke from off his neck. I will burst your bonds, and foreigners will no longer make a servant of you. Once again, just hearkening back to that day, uh, excuse me, that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30, a promise of salvation from their current distress. But when you get to verse 9, we begin to get the first hint that what Jeremiah is talking about in these two chapters may not simply be events that take place in his century. They wouldn't simply be the return of certain captives in 536 B.C. It wouldn't be even 70 years later in 516 B.C. when they finally rebuilt the temple that symbolized the end of the formal Uh, captivity or, or, or any of those things. But when you get to verse nine, you read this, but they shall serve the Lord, their God, and David, their King, whom I will raise up for them. David, of course, was the King of Israel 400 years earlier. And David had received himself a covenant not the new covenant, but his own covenant, the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel chapter 7, where he received a promise that God would raise up one of his heirs, one of David's heirs, and seat him on the throne of Israel forever. In Second Samuel 7, Therefore, thus says, uh, excuse me, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people, and I have been with you wherever you have went. And have cut off your enemies from before you, and I'll make you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them there so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men will afflict them no more. This is the first part of the Davidic covenant. He's going to give David a great name. He's going to give Israel a place. And he's going to give them ease no longer disturbed by anyone. And he goes on in verse 12 of Second Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, and he will build a house for my name. And I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever, and I will be to him a father, and he'll be to me a son. Now here in Jeremiah 800, or excuse me, 400 years later, we hear the Lord once again affirming this promise. Not only is he going to raise up uh, Israel out of their captivity, but he's going to raise up for them this promised heir of David and place him on the throne. Verse 10, then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar, your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return to me and have quiet And ease, and none shall make him afraid. You hear the echoes of the Davidic covenant there. Plant Israel in their own place, disturb you no more, violent men will afflict you no more. So this. Already is indicating to us. This is a restoration that goes far beyond anything that took place in Jeremiah's day. This looks to an ultimate restoration. uh, We might say a messianic restoration. A promise that hasn't even fully been fulfilled. It begins to talk, if you will, begins to point to the ultimate future. The ultimate destiny of Israel. It's a destiny whose likeness was represented in their return from Babylon, but its fullness has yet to be seen. Now, all this brings us to a third poem in this passage, and, and we'll look at it today, beginning in verse 12, and we'll call it, From Hurt to Healing. From Hurt to Healing. The Lord says in verse 12, thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There's none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable. Because your guilt is great. Because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured. All your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered. And all who prey on you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you. And your wounds I will heal declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. So he begins now to picture Israel as a mortally wounded person, someone who has been struck by a sword, someone who's been struck by the blows of an enemy, more Fitting, we might say, he pictures them as the sinner who has suffered the blows of the consequences of their sin. And like the sinner who throughout all of his days has endured the progressive, damaging uh, consequences of their choices one after another, day after day, week after week, until they are finally beaten down and beaten down. And now, here they sit in the midst of the disaster that their life has become. They tried to resist the blows of God's judgment and His punishing hand. They weathered the storm through all of the weary years of pursuing their sin. As the Lord stripped away their happiness, as the Lord stripped away their joy, as He stripped away their security and their peace, and He stripped away their comforts, the Lord stripped away their relationships, and here they are at the end, and all that they have now is this misery and this hardship. And the Lord says, you're like a person who has a fatal wound, and it won't heal. It won't stop bleeding. It won't stop oozing. There is no scab that forms over it. You cannot find comfort from the pain. It is incurable. In fact, it is grievous or we might even say gruesome. People don't even want to look at it. It is so repulsive. There's no medicine for it. There are no painkillers to take away the pain. There's no lotion or ointment that can soothe the skin. You're just sitting in the pain and the agony and the misery of God's hand of judgment against your rebellion. That's where you are. And even worse than that, he says, all of your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. This is a reference to, you might say, the people in whom Israel found its comfort. Over and over again as you read through the Old Testament, God compares the foreign nations around Israel to adulterous relationships, to a kind of, a, a kind of uh, uh, immoral comfort that Israel sought in the arms of other nations, even other gods. Because of Israel's position with God as His choice nation, His choice people, He referred to them as His bride. He betrothed Israel to Himself. He married her. And yet, just as soon as He took her to Himself, she ran away. She was adulterous. She repeatedly turned to these other gods, these other nations for comforts, to be her Savior. Back in Jeremiah 22, as a matter of fact, in verse 20... The Lord pictures Lebanon as one of these lovers. Jeremiah twenty two twenty. Go up to Lebanon. Cry out. Lift up your voice in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim. For all your lovers are destroyed. I spoke to you in your prosperity and you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth that you have not obeyed my voice. Even more graphically, over in the book of Ezekiel, the book of Ezekiel in chapter 23, the Lord says to Israel, Ohola, which is basically a a word meaning a second place of worship. It it refers to uh, particularly the northern kingdom who refused to worship as God had commanded in Jerusalem. Ohola has played the whore like uh, while she was mine. Excuse me. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrians, warriors, clothed in purple, governors and commanders, all of them desirable young men, horsemen riding on horses. She bestowed her whoring upon them and the choicest men of Assyria, all of them. And she defiled herself with the idols of everyone after whom she lusted. She did not give up her whoring that she had begun in Egypt. For in her youth, men had lain with her and handled her virgin bosom and poured out their whoring lust upon her. Therefore, I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, into the hands of the Assyrians, after whom she lusted. Down in verse 22. Therefore, O holaba, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will stir up against you your lovers whom you turn to in disgust. And I will bring, you, bring them against you from every side the Babylonians and all the Chaldeans, Peked and Shoah and Koah, and all the Assyrians with them, desirable men, governors and commanders, all of them, officers and men of renown, all of them riding on horses. And they shall come against you from the north with chariots and wagons and a host of people. And they shall set themselves up against you on every side with buckler and shield and helmet. And I will commit the judgment to them. And they shall judge you according to their judgments. And I will direct my jealousy against you that they may deal with you in fury. They shall cut off your nose and your ears. And your survivors shall fall with a sword. They'll seize your sons and your daughters, and your survivors shall be devoured by fire. They'll also strip you of your clothes and take away your beautiful jewels. Thus I'll put an end to your lewdness and your whoring, which began in the land of Egypt. So you shall not lift up your eyes to them or remember Egypt anymore. Repulsive language. That matches the repulsive behavior of Israel. You know the Lord has a way. He has a way. Of helping us see. The reality. Of the idols of our heart. He has a way of helping us see the ugliness of our sin. He has a way of helping us expose. The cruelty of our desires. He has a way of taking the very things that we once thought that we loved and making us loathe them. This is exactly what he was doing. This is what Jeremiah is picturing. Israel, who once thought that she had it all, who once thought that she was the sort of the bell of the ball, Israel, who once thought that all of these surrounding peoples in whom she found her comfort and trust, now finds herself as the object of their cruelty. Israel, who once thought that she had an abundance of friends, is now abandoned in her misery. Lamentations. Jeremiah writes later, laments this in verse 1 of chapter 1. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become. She was great among the nations... She who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. Indeed, they've become her enemies. Such a picture of the sinner... When they finally face the consequences of their choices that they have denied all of those years until they reach the point where they just sit on the floor in their misery, the laughter of their supposed friendships is a distant memory. They might have had friends who wanted them around when the times were good and the money was flowing and everything was at ease, but now no one wants to be near you. They basically abandon you because they're not really your friends to begin with. They were your partners in sin as you all ultimately pursued your own selfish desires. But once you become a drag on the party, once you become a problem to be dealt with, no one wants to deal with you, so they abandon you as quickly as they can and leave you sitting in your misery. Jeremiah 30 verse 15, the Lord asks, Why do you cry over your hurt? Why are you even bothering? Don't you know your pain is incurable? In other words, don't you understand your case seems hopeless? He says in verse 15, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant, I have done these things to you. Here we find out why all of this really happened. Because Israel had become so flagrant... In their sins against God, back in verse fourteen, I have dealt with. I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe. As some translations even put it, the the, the uh, punishment of a cruel one. That's probably a very literal translation. This, of course, is the perspective of the sinner whenever they begin to face the consequences of their sin, whenever they begin to face the pain of everything that they've done, they immediately accuse the righteous God. Even though God gave them his law, even though God told them and warned them what the consequences were, even though God has shown them Patience after patience after patience, even though God has continued to show generosity to them, all these other things, when they finally face the consequences of their sin and they're sitting in their misery, they point their finger at God and they call Him the cruel one. Nothing could be further from the truth, though. The Lord is always full of mercy. He's always full of kindness. He's always full of good fruits. In fact, the reason He struck you, the reason He leveled His blow against you was so that he could save you from your destructive ways because your sins are flagrant. Because you'd reached the point where you wouldn't take any correction, you wouldn't take any kind of rebuke, you were insistent, or in this case, Israel was insistent on charging forward into their own selfish and sinful pursuits. remember last time we detailed what some of those were whether it was killing the prophets even in Jeremiah's own day there was a prophet named Uriah who stood side by side with Jeremiah prophesying and they drug him into the courts of the king and they slew him in the presence of the king and then dumped his body out in a an unmarked hole in the ground they were selfish sinful They would annihilate anyone who got in the way of their own lust and desires. They even burned their own children on the altar of Molech. They would light a flame under the metal statue until the arms of the idol were glowing red with heat. And then they would take their little infant and place it on the metal plate And listen as the child screamed out in pain while the soft skin of his or her little body seared and sizzled against the heat of the metal until it finally died. And they wouldn't repent. And they wouldn't turn back. They were destroying everything around them, including themselves. And they were intent on pursuing their way. And the Lord would not sit back quietly and let them do that. So He struck them by the hand of these foreign nations. And when they faced the hand of His punishment, they actually turned around and called Him the cruel one. Because from their perspective, He was taking away all of their freedom and their pleasures. In reality, the punishing blows of God were some of His greatest acts of love. They were intended to lead to healing, not wounding. God knew that Israel had reached a point where they would not listen unless He took drastic measures, and they shouldn't interpret that as God being truly their enemy. They should interpret it as God not utterly abandoning them. Because He says in verse 16, As quickly as He struck them, He'll strike the ones who hurt them. Therefore, he says, all who devour you will be devoured and all your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you will be plundered and all who prey on you, I'll make a prey for I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord. God's intent in striking them was ultimately so that he could heal them from the inside out. All their worldly amusements that used to bring him so much superficial pleasure and ultimately pain they'll face their own they'll face their own judgment those those foreigners those lovers will face their own hand of wrath and then he says at the end of verse 17 because they have called you an outcast it is zion for whom no one cares. This really provoked God. It really provoked God. For someone to see him punishing his people and to wrongly conclude that that punishment means he doesn't care. They were accusing God of being unfaithful to his love and his covenant for them. For them to walk by Jerusalem and to see her pain and suffering and to conclude from the pain and suffering that God doesn't care. The exact opposite was true. As the scripture says, if you're without discipline, then you're not a son. For a father disciplines those that he loves. This was an offense to God. It was offensive to him. When people began to claim that he had abandoned his people, when, when God's people are suffering and, and and folks make an accusation that through their suffering, God has forgotten his people. Whenever, whenever you see the nation of Israel going through its torment, going through its struggles, and you accuse God, or you conclude that God has given up on his covenant with them when he promised to love them forever and uniquely, it is offensive to God. So when the other nations looked at Israel in their misery and began to mock, claiming they had been cast aside like a rejected lover, God's anger was stirred. And he pledges that he would devour those who devoured Israel. He would plunder those who, who plundered Israel. This is the Lord, the one who strikes you with discipline. He does it. He wounds you so that He can heal you. And you have to understand where that healing comes from. Deuteronomy 32, once again, See now that I, even I, am He. There is no God besides me. I kill and make alive. I wound and I heal. And there's none that can deliver out of my hand. God is your fiercest threat. He's also your greatest hope. He can deliver and He can heal. Very quickly, there's a fourth poem in verses 18, all the way through the first verse of chapter 31. And we can just call it From Rage to Reconciliation. From Rage to Reconciliation. He says in verse 18, thus says the Lord, once again, that little introductory mark, thus says the Lord, behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob. I'll have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving. The voice of those who celebrate, I will multiply them. They shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. I will burst upon the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until He's executed and accomplished the intentions of His mind. In the latter days, you will understand this. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be My people. He's telling us something here that is not going to be fully understood until it's completed. It's not going to be understood by Israel. It will hardly be understood by others. But he is doing a work, he says, to reconcile all of Israel to himself. All the clans of Israel. Both the northern tribes, the southern tribes, every one of them. And he pictures, once again, Israel here, not as someone who's been mortally wounded, but as a ruined city. And it was not just an image, it was a reality. The city had been destroyed, the city had been leveled to the ground, nothing was left but a pile of stones and all the buildings that used to stand there. In ancient terms, they call this a tell. In fact, that's the word in the Hebrew text. It's called a tell, or we translate it a mound or a heap. A tell is basically a pile of old stones where a city had been destroyed. It stood that way for a while until eventually sand and dust would blow into the cracks and the crevices and vegetation would take root and eventually plants would grow all on top of all of the old ruins. And then sometime later, maybe a century later, another generation would show up and they would actually build directly on top of the old stones. And it would happen again and again and again throughout the centuries. And so as you go to Israel, you see these cities that literally are built up on mounds. And they call them Tells. One of the most well-known Tells is Tel Aviv, the capital of Israel. Well, the Lord is telling the people of Israel that he is going to rebuild the city And not just any city, he is going to rebuild the city right on the same spot where it had been destroyed. That mound of rubble that was left over, that tell that the Babylonians left behind, it will be rebuilt. And it will include not just the city, but all the tents, all the dwellings, kind of a reference to all the rural areas of Israel as well basically all of their homes all the places where they lived and he even says there in verse 18 even the king's palace would be restored john calvin says here quote he mentions a fuller display of his favor that he would again build jerusalem upon its own heap or hill or as some as some render it for the situation of the city was high towering above the other parts of judea But it seems to me that the prophet means that the city would be built on his own foundations, for he calls it here a heap of ruins or piles. The city had been destroyed in such a manner, and yet some ruins remained, some vestiges of the walls. It is then the same as though he had said that city, however splendid and wealthy in former times, would yet be restored to its dignity and not less than it was before. That's exactly what he's saying. He's saying that God was going to rebuild the city. And not only that, verse 19, instead of moanings and grief and pain from all of the destruction and, and, and all the panic and terror, in verse 19, there's going to be a sound of thanksgiving and celebration. Instead of the stomping of horse, horses' hooves and the, the sound of chariots, there's going to be happiness and dancing and community life. And not only that, verse 19, God's going to multiply them, which is a reference back to the covenant God made with Abraham when he would make them as the descendants, as vast as the descendants, excuse me, as the sands of the sea. Verse 20, he's going to restore everything that had been lost plus some. Their children, he says, will be like they were of old. And then in verse 21, he promises once again a new kind of king. Their prince, he says, Shall be one of themselves, their ruler shall come out from their midst, and i'll make him draw near he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me? declares the Lord, in other words he's going to give him a king unlike any king Israel ever had. this king will approach God that by the way, that word approach is a is a technical word that was used particularly in the in the book of in the uh Pentateuch is a technical word that was used to talk about the priest. The priest were the only ones who were actually allowed to approach God in a physical way. They had the temple set up, and within the temple, there was an inner chamber, the Holy of Holies, and only the priests were allowed to go there. In the, in the very center, the Holy of Holies, only the high priest once a year on the, the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, he would go in, he would crawl in, they would tie a rope to his ankle in case he was struck down before God so that no other person would have to dare go in there. They could just drag his body out through the curtain people didn't just approach god because god is holy and he doesn't take lightly to sin and so you can't dwell in god's presence if you have sin and so so people don't just approach god but here he tells us this king's going to do it indicating that this king is different he's different than you and i he can approach god because he doesn't have sin See, sin separates you from God, sin separates you from His presence, it separates you from fellowship, but this king won't have that. That means that this king can function both as king and as priest. He can be both a ruler and a mediator. He can be someone who can give both guidance and can restore fellowship with God. You know, other kings had tried this. King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26 took it upon himself. He wanted to go burn incense in the altar. And as he approached the altar with his scepter to burn the incense, the priest stood in the doorway to try to stop him. And as he tried to force his way into the Holy of Holies, the Scripture says leprosy literally broke out on his body in front of them. The Lord cursed him for trying to do this. Or you had Jeroboam who wasn't in Jerusalem, but decided that he wanted to set himself up as a king and a priest. So he built his own altar and he built his own sort of uh, uh, temple. And he went in and he decided he was going to burn incense. But as he stretched out his hand against those who criticized him, his hand withered on his body. The Lord struck him on the spot. There are no kings who can do this except one. God's telling this king will be different. He can approach me because he's worthy. Because he's righteous. Because he's fair. Because he rules in justice. Because he has no sin. The king, of course, is Jesus Christ. The one who can truly reconcile Israel to God. The one who can truly reconcile you to God. As a matter of fact, because of his work as ruler in Israel and ruler in their life and because of his work as priest offering up a sacrifice that God finds worthy, the result in verse 22 God declares is that finally you shall be my people and I will be your God. It says the same thing down in chapter 31, verse 1. All of it, very explicit. All the clans of Israel will be my people, and I will be their God. So the city is going to be rebuilt on its ruins. There will be from it sounds of sincere joy and worship and gladness. The people will finally be multiplied as promised to Abraham. And they will have a priestly king who rules in righteousness. And the heart of the people will finally, finally belong to God. And God will gladly claim them as his own. But in verses 23 and 24, none of this happens until the wicked are dealt with. The blessings Jeremiah is speaking of are only for the godly. In fact, he says it there in verse 20. Uh, 24. In the latter days, you'll understand this. This is something that is yet to come. The blessings can't be given until the discipline and the judgment are meted out. It would be a mockery of God's righteousness. It would be a mockery of God's kindness for him to simply overlook sins such as Israel had, to not punish them, to just reward Israel in their wickedness. It would be a mockery. And so although the Lord is committed to loving them, He's going to love them through His righteous love. Which means on one hand, them facing the chastening hand of the Lord until they repent. And then once they repent, The Lord healing their wound. Well, more poems next week, more as we march steadily forward to the new covenant. Let's stand together as we're dismissed with a word of prayer. Almighty God, since we are so slow to think about and contemplate your judgments. And since we continually harden our hearts and our sins, grant us, O oh God, that we would be genuinely moved by your warnings, that they would stimulate us and invite us to repentance so that we could learn to humble ourselves and submit ourselves to your disciplining hand that we would be capable of receiving that mercy which turns whatever evil may happen to us into our good and our salvation until at length we be gathered together into that blessed state where once and for all we stand before you fully prepared by the work of your grace. Fully redeemed by the power of your sacrifice. Lord, we pray for any who are here today who are sitting still in the misery of their sin. They have yet to repent. They look around and they've been abandoned by all of their their lovers. They, they look to you and they imagine that the cruelty that's coming against them is reflective of a cruel God. Lord, open their eyes to see your kindness your mercy. We pray, Father, that you would grant them grace to repent, to believe and be reconciled to you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.